audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Beginning in verse 1, all the way through 1 Samuel 7, verse 2. All right, so 4 1 to 7 2. Not going to read all of it, um, but we are going to read together the first 11 verses of chapter 4. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 through verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. The ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may we see you in your holiness and glory and not cheapen who you are. May we not mistake the things of you with you. Father, I pray in our midst today you convict us of sin through the word of the Lord, but then bind us back again with the salve of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And may you be glorified in our hearing today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Like I said, a lot of ground to uh, cover today. Um, I'm actually, these three chapters will lead us into next week, which is chapter seven. And I'm kind of treating these three chapters as part one, next week as part two. Um, I don't really like to do that a lot, but I'm doing it today uh, and next week. So uh, these three chapters will prepare the way for us to enter into chapter 7 in uh, in next week, next Sunday. 
So again, I hope you're reading along with us through First and Second Samuel, because obviously there's a lot here this morning we're not going to read directly from the scriptures. I'll summarize it for you, but we're not going to read it directly. Each week in the newsletter, just FYI, I'll say it again, I put the coming Sunday's text in there. So you can read ahead, get prepared for the coming Sunday in your own reading, because there are some weeks where we just won't be able to read everything, because this book is large and we have a limited time. So we enter into chapter 4 today, uh, right off the hills of Samuel, being officially appointed by God to be the prophet to Israel at the end of chapter 3. Something we preached on last week. Samuel steps into this role, the end of chapter 3, and then heading into chapter 4, he disappears again. We don't actually see him again until chapter 7, verse 3. So in these three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, Samuel is not directly mentioned by name one time. In fact, he's not even alluded to indirectly at all. He's there. He has just once again faded into the background. And there's a lot of reasons people believe this, which we won't get into today, why this is the case. But regardless of the conclusion we may come to as to why Samuel becomes obscure again in our study of 1 Samuel, I believe one of the key things we learn from this text today is that God is able to accomplish his purposes on this earth with or without us. He doesn't need us to carry out his will here. We're going to see numerous times over the next few minutes God demonstrating his supernatural and sovereign rule and reign over people groups and nations and other gods with absolutely no help from human beings. Lest we think God needs Samuel or needs the armies of Israel or needs a human mediator to carry out his work on the earth, lest we think for a moment God needs these people and offices to accomplish his work, we're going to watch God cause the nations to tremble and gods to bow down and worship before him the sovereign ruler of the universe, without any aid from a human hand at all. The central figure in these three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, is actually not even human. The central figure isn't an animate object at all, but it's the Ark of the Covenant. There's a picture I actually have of the Ark of the Covenant right there. That's what it might have looked like. The Ark of the Covenant, Exodus 25. You know, as God is giving the law to Moses and his people there at Mount Sinai, how they should live, he gives instructions to build this box of acacia wood, to line this box, full, uh, line the outside of gold, the inside with gold, to put rings on it that poles could be carried. You see the poles there in the picture. Put cherubim, these two angelic figures on the top, to cover with their wings what's called the mercy seat right there in the middle. In the Exodus 25, 22, God said he would, quote, speak with you, speaking to Moses, speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel from the mercy seat. The ark was a visible representation of the presence of God. The ark was not God. But it was a real tangible expression that the God of Israel was a God who dwelled among his people. And in some special way, God did dwell with the ark. And the ark would rest in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, as it's sometimes called, later in the most holy place of the temple once it's built. And it was separated by a massive curtain 
keeping out all the unholy things from entering into the presence of the holy, the holy God. And in the ark was stored the Ten Commandments. Aaron's staff that budded back in Numbers is stored in there. You also have some manna that God gave Israel from heaven that is stored in the ark. But the people would carry this ark with them as they headed towards the promised land. And up to this point in the history of Israel, first Samuel chapter 4, the ark had been, as far as we know, handled with care. You know, treated with reverence and awe according to how God had commanded it to be treated. No one approached the Ark of the Covenant apart from the high priest, and only he once a year on the Day of Atonement, where he would enter into the most holy place to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. But the Ark was concealed away most of the time, the holy separated from the profane, so that the people would not die in their unholiness when they entered into the presence of a holy God. But let's remember the spiritual state of where we are in Israel at this time in 1 Samuel. At this point, we are still sitting under the cloud of Judges 21-25. Remember? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The priests were corrupt, as we've seen already, particularly Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli. The sacrificial system and process has been corrupted by these corrupt priests. The holiness of God has been compromised in the eyes of the people because of these corrupt leaders. And as readers of this text, we have in our minds, in the back of our minds, the prophecy from the unnamed prophet in 1 Samuel 2 and affirmed once again by Samuel in 1 Samuel 3 that Eli's house was about to be destroyed, right? Right? that the judgment of God was about to fall upon the family of Eli, that Hophni and Phinehas would die the same day. There's this ominous cloud and tone, even entering into our text for this morning, that is still hovering over us as we come here. But the Ark of the Covenant, this visible, symbolic manifestation the presence of God among his people was about to go on a journey. Not a journey the people of Israel would have chosen, but a journey nonetheless that God used to accomplish his purposes in the nations. Here's a map of the journey we're about to enter upon. So we're going to start in Shiloh, top right, where the Ark of the Covenant lived, so to speak. We travel around here, you follow the arrows, and we're going we're to end in Kiriath-Jerim. Seven cities we're going to hit in these three chapters. Seven cities where we're going to see a variety of human responses, three wrong ones and one right one, to the presence of God among the people. So let's begin our journey here, beginning in chapter 4. Israel, we just read it, goes out to wage war on the Philistines. This is the first time in Samuel the Philistines are mentioned. They're, they're going to be a continuous thorn in the side of Israel for centuries to come. It's hard to tell who's the aggressor here at the beginning of 1 Samuel 4, whether it's Israel or Philistia. But regardless, Israel loses the first battle and 4,000 men die. Now up to this point in the scriptures, Israel had never suffered casualties in war like this. They've been defeated, particularly at AI, but not like this, not in this way, 
This is new terrain. So the elders, they convene together and they come to this conclusion that the reason they're defeated was because they forgot to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield. That's why. That's why we lost. So Hophni and Phinehas, we know about them, they come out with the Ark to battle. And this causes rejoicing in the camp of Israel and fear in the camp of the Philistines. But it doesn't matter for what they, when they meet again on the field of battle, Israel is slaughtered. 30,000 foot soldiers die, unprecedented numbers, unprecedented numbers at this stage in Israel's history. Those that survive, they flee to their homes. Hophni and Phinehas are killed. The ark is captured, definitely the lowest point in the history of Israel since slavery in Egypt. So let's pause there for just a second in our narrative. There's a lot going on. But the first faulty response we see to the presence of God among the people is in chapter 4, and it's this. The leadership of Israel sought to manipulate Yahweh. The leadership in Israel sought to manipulate God. They go out to battle the first time they're defeated. They come back, and the conclusion they reach is to treat the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky charm like a rabbit's foot, like a magic trick. As long as they bring it out and have it present with them, God will give them the victory. Now, there's precedent for the ark being in battle. I mean, it's happened before. Their reasoning wasn't far off. Numbers 10.35 says that wherever the ark was set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So there's some precedent before now to take the ark into battles, to remember God's presence as being with his people. But this precedent assumed one vital thing underlying it. And those those vital things are a contrite and penitent heart. Hearts that were conformed to God's law, not conformed to rebellion as the people had been conform to up to this point in 1 Samuel. Israel's decision to bring the ark out here like a good luck charm teaches us that it's possible to use the right methods with the wrong motives. It's possible to go about implementing the right methods but have completely wrong motives. They knew the power of God was essential for victory in the battle, but more than securing external victory, God desired internal renewal. He wanted repentance And Israel had no intention of reforming their ways. They only wanted the get victorious quick schemes rather than the costly work of repentance. We look there in verse 3 of chapter 4. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Right question. I mean, even in defeat, there's a recognition that God is sovereign over loss just as much as he's sovereign over victory. Why has the Lord defeated us, right? But wrong conclusion. Right question, wrong conclusion. Right methods, wrong motives. You know, it's difficult to find, uh, it's not difficult, excuse me, to find commonalities between this treatment of God's holiness and our own, this treatment of God's presence and our own. I think there's some times in our lives where we view the means of growing in grace, the means of intimacy with Christ, The disciplines intended to bring us into greater conformity to Christ and his character. I think there are times in our lives where we see those means as a form of divine arm twisting. If I'll just do this and this and this for God, he'll do this and this and this for me. 
Or if I don't do this and this and this for God, then he won't do this and this and this for me. You know, he's on, we feel like he's on the hook to produce for us when we do things for him. It's like we're using the means of God to pad our spiritual bank account so that one day we can make a hefty withdrawal. That he owes us something. We move from being believers in God's grace to believers in some, some sort of divine karma. If I do, then he, right? We try and use the right methods of God to stack the deck to get a good hand from the Lord. The methods become means of manipulation rather than a means of intimacy and knowledge with our God. But I think the most tragic thing of all from this part of the chapter four is Israel's failure to see their role in this defeat. You know, not only do they and us seek to use right methods coupled with wrong motives, but second, they and us, we can bypass the severity of our own sin. Just overlook it, that our sin played a role in the defeat here. You know, if the priests had been doing their jobs, if they'd been teaching the people the law, which is one of the primary things a priest should have been doing, they'd been keeping it before the people day and night, Israel would have been very familiar with three texts, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27, and Deuteronomy 28. These three chapters in the law, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27, and Deuteronomy 28, comprise what are known as the blessings and the curses. Blessings for obedience, Curses for disobedience. And in Deuteronomy 28, 25, Moses writes that if the people chose to disobey God's law, if they rebelled against God, they did not follow his decrees. Verse 25 says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you will be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. You know, Israel's first step in the law towards a restoration of national spirit and energy should not have been using God's means to manipulate God's actions, but rather the first step should have been internal reformation. You know, when asking the question, why did the Lord defeat us today, Israel's leaders failed to look at themselves They failed to look at their own disobedience and failure to cling to God's law on how they should live and repent. And the ark as a representative of God's holiness, just them being with it, like Hophni and Phinehas being so close to that holy ark, just them being in the presence of that should have reminded them and exposed them that they are unholy people. But instead, the symbol of God's set-apartness of his holiness had been reduced down to just a mere decorative, superstitious ornament. Proper theology is not a substitute for penitent self-examination. Their question is theologically correct. Why did the Lord bring this defeat upon us today? God was acknowledged, but not one time did the people stop and ask the hard questions of themselves. 
to see if their own disobedience could have been a reason. Could have been. Not every time, but could have been a reason. God brought this judgment upon them. Listen, we can have all the right theological answers. We can possess the Bible and know it backwards and forwards. But if the starting point of our knowledge of God is not a humble self-examination of our own hearts and motives, we are missing it. Missing it. So not only, first, can we bypass the severity of our sin, but second, we also can run the risk of our sin affecting generations after us. Sin committed today potentially affects generations born tomorrow. Back to the narrative, back to the narrative. Picking up in verse 12. Morgan gets back to 98-year-old blind Eli. He's blind at this point. He's losing his eyesight last chapter. Now he's fully blind. <clears throat> and he can't see. And this guy comes up to him in torn clothes, just looking disheveled. Eli can't see him, right? He's blind. He just hears the, the mess and the commotion and the anguished cries of the people in Shiloh as the Philistines have carried off the ark and are closing in upon them. And he hears this news that Israel's defeated, that his sons are dead. But when he hears the news that the ark had been captured... He falls out of his chair and he breaks his neck under the weight of his own body and he dies. Around the same time, Phineas' wife, one of his sons who's just perished on the battlefield, she hears the news that the ark had been captured. And in her distress, she names her son Ichabod, which means glory has departed. For the glory of the presence of God had left Israel when the ark was taken away, and then she dies in childbirth. Prophesied judgment upon the house of Eli was happening. And the only one left in his family line is an orphaned infant whose name is a constant reminder that the glory of God had left his people. And there's an interesting play on words here at the beginning of verse 18. There's a Hebrew word we've used here before, talk about it a lot in English, <laughs> but the Hebrew word uh, used in the Old Testament is this word kavod, and it means a variety of things in the Old Testament. It could be used to describe something heavy or burdensome. Kavod could be used to describe something worthy of honor or significance, something that's has a spiritual weightiness to it, like a figurative weightiness. But it's also the word we use, the, the scriptures use in English to describe the word glory, the glory of God, the weight, the significance, the value of God. Eli was a man in Israel with much kavod. His influence and word carried weight and significance in Israel. He was very much revered in the nation. But in verse 18, he's also described as kavod, as heavy, literally, overweight, feasting on the sacrifices his sons would take from the Lord, eating. His spiritual kavod shrank while his physical kavod grew. That's what you're seeing here, this play on words. And so finally, with the name of his grandson, Ikavod, glory is gone, do you see that 
Not only is the kavod of Eli no more, the weightiness of Eli's house no more, but the kavod of Yahweh had departed from the nation. For Israel on that day, the kavod was no more. The glory was gone. Your sin today, my sin today, the weight, significance, the heaviness of our sin, of our decisions, the kavod of our lives, the decisions and actions we make today could potentially affect generations after us. Actions done in the dark of night, teachings instilled in your children in the light of day can be passed down to their children and their children and their children. Sin does not only affect you. It does not only affect those around you. It does not only affect this church or your families or your neighbors. Your sin could potentially affect boys and girls who will grow up to be men and women, grandfathers and grandmothers who have not even been born yet. Not even here. Take heed, church, from this story that sin does not happen in a vacuum and the consequences are not felt in a vacuum. This devastation is is not only experienced by you alone, but it could potentially be experienced by your children, your children's children, your children's children, children, to the third and the fourth generation. It's a big deal. So if leadership of Israel, the leadership of Israel sought to manipulate Yahweh, as we move into chapter 5, we also see second faulty response to the presence of God. The Philistines sought to conquer Yahweh, sought to conquer him, to bring him into subjection to them and their God, Dagon, as you see in chapter 5. It's a summary of chapter 5. We're not going to read it. But the victorious Philistines, they bring this captured ark home to Ashdod, the capital of Philistia. They place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. There's a picture of him up here, I think. Yeah, merman here, uh, long beard, nice little top hat. That's Dagon. Um, But the morning after they do that, after they bring the ark into his temple, the morning after they go in and they find Dagon, the statue of Dagon, lying face down in the dust before the ark of the Lord. This God, who was in the minds of the Philistines responsible for bringing about victory in a massive bloody battle a few days before, has to be picked up by his own followers out of the dust and placed back in his place of authority and power. I mean, there's just irony all over this text, right? What a mighty God that his own people have to bear up under his weight to put him back where he goes. But after being put back the next morning, if that's not enough, they come back in again, find Dagon lying face down before the ark again. Only this time, his head and his hands have been cut off from his body. Yahweh is humiliating this foreign God without even having to lift a finger, speak a word, or use anyone. The God credited with killing 34,000 Israelites in battle has been utterly decapitated and made obsolete by the one true God in his own house. His own temple. You know, the glory of God may have departed from Israel, but my goodness, it's showing up in Philistia. It's for dang sure. 
When ancient foreign nations would conquer other nations in this day, a common practice was to bring the gods or goddesses of those conquered nations and bring them back to the temples of the winning gods, place them in the temples of those gods to, as kind of spoils of victory, show that what their god had conquered in these other lesser gods. Many of those conquering nations, they would see these newly acquired gods and goddesses, and although possessing less power than their god, they still had power that could be tapped into for personal use. So the more gods you accumulate in your temple, so to speak, the more potential power and wealth and might and favor you could garnish from these gods. Now I wonder how many of us, although we don't have physical rooms with idols uh, and shrines that I know of, if you do, let's have a conversation, Um, but I wonder how many of us have taken Christ and set him as one among a pantheon of other gods and goddesses we find power and significance through. You know, like the Philistines, we often proclaim allegiance to one, yet we practice the worship of many. We worship Christ, yet we find more peace when our bank accounts are full. We worship Christ, yet we find more self-worth when we receive promotions at work. We worship Christ, yet we find more pleasure when entertaining thoughts of others besides our spouse. We worship Christ, yet find our identities made up more of self-definitions than God-given definitions. We worship Christ, yet we find ourselves more emotionally invested in the outcome of a game than we are on a Sunday morning following the game. The world, this world is full of gods at war. And Yahweh will bring all of our gods into subjection to himself one way or another. John Calvin called our hearts idol factories, just producing out all kinds of little G-gods, and we need our God to smash them, to finish them off. May God conquer us. May we not seek to conquer him. But not only is Yahweh humiliating this foreign God of the Philistines as we continue in our narrative, but he begins to inflict the people of Ashdod with tumors, Keep reading on in chapter 5. People start getting sick. They start panicking. The armies of Israel can't defeat the Philistines. God begins doing it without any help of earthly armies at all. Starts making people get sick with tumors. So the leaders of Ashdod, they come together and they say, we got to get this thing out of here. It can't stay with us anymore. So they're like, let's send it to Gath, fourth city here on our journey of the ark. Let's send it to Gath. So the ark gets to Gath, another city in Philistia, and Yahweh starts doing the same thing. And the leaders say, we got to get this thing out of here. Let's send it to Ekron, fifth city here on our stop. The people of Ekron, they're like, we don't want it here. Like, you brought you two, you guys, you guys are all tumors and stuff. We don't want it here. Let's just send it back to Israel. And then entering into chapter 6, they begin to devise a plan to send the ark back. And then seven months, after seven months in Philistine territory here, Going into chapter 6, the priests and the diviners of the Philistines, they get together, they decide to send the ark back to Israel with a guilt offering. They know enough to know they messed up. They don't know about gift offerings or guilt offerings because they're offering up a bunch of unclean stuff, but they know enough to know we have made, made these gods mad. Whoever these gods are, we've made them mad. Let's send it back. Let's atone for our sin. So they put together these five golden tumors 
interesting. And these five golden mice, these tumors representing the cities, the major cities in Philistia, excuse me. The five mice representing these cities' rulers. And they build this cart, and they put the ark of God on this cart, which is not the way you're supposed to transform, transport the ark of God. We'll get to that later in 2 Samuel. They put two female cows as leading this cart with the ark of God and these tumors and mice on there. These two cows that have had no yoke upon them before. They were nursing mother cows, so they take their calves away from them. And their thought process is this. If these untrained mothering cows do not turn aside to go back to their calves, or do not try to go left and right to get out of this yoke we've placed upon them for the first time ever, if they just go straight towards Israel, we'll know that their gods have accepted our sacrifice. That we're off the hook. All right? Sure enough, the cows, they head straight for Israel, for Beth Shemesh, a city of Levites, Israeli priests. It's a city of priests. And these priests, they rejoice at the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant. Chapter 6, verse 10. They see it coming, verse 13. They see it coming from a distance and they rejoice. But they too fail. They fail to approach the Ark of the Lord. And it's prescribed away. And at the end of chapter 6, God kills 70 of them. And their response to God's presence among them is much like that of their Philistine enemies. Send it away. Send it away. And it's here in Beth Shemesh that we see a group of people who seek to commonize God. People of Beth Shemesh sought to commonize, it's a real word, I looked it up, commonize God. Now I hope by now in these three chapters, by now in our study of 1 Samuel up to this point, that that you see that there's nothing common about God. I mean, describing him as holy strips him of anything common. For holy literally means unique and different, set apart, unlike any other. But this city of priests, these Levites, not only Levites, but Kohathites among the Levitical tribe. Kohathites were the ones that were given the task of handling the holy things. Numbers chapter 4. In other words, people who should have known better. People who should know how to approach a holy God. They mishandle the ark as well. They draw too close and they touch it and God's wrath falls upon them. And what we learn from the people of Beth Shemesh is this. We tend to rejoice when God moves at a distance, but send him away when he gets too close. Verse 13, the people, they lift their eyes. They see the ark coming and rejoice. But by verse 20, when the presence of God is among them in the ark, they seek to send it away. Send God away. Why? I think there are two reasons why. These are not in your notes. These are free of charge. Two reasons. First, When God gets close, his holiness exposes our unholiness. Cody talked about that already. We are laid bare before him. There's no more hiding. There's no more covering up. There's no more excuses. We have to come to terms with our own sin and his holy character. This is one of the first things that would happen when God would show up among his people in the scriptures. 
Cody, it's so funny, man. I didn't even look at the, like, I didn't see what your confession was until this morning. I'm about to quote Isaiah 6 again. So thank you for the precursor here. Sovereignty of the Lord. But Isaiah 6 is a great example. Isaiah enters the temple of Yahweh in the year that King Uzziah dies. He sees the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple with glory, with kavod. And the seraphim with six wings, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the temple shakes literally at the voice of the Lord. And what is Isaiah's first response? Be near, O God, be near. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Draw near to me, O God. Draw me close to you. No, sing about those things and there's a place for those things, but that's not his response. His response is when you come face to face with the holiness of God is to pray a curse upon himself. Woe is me. I'm a dead man. For I'm full of sin and I've seen the king. You don't hear many songs about that. The first act of God when he draws us near is to expose our unholiness. This is the starting point for salvation. Is that you are broken and sinful and unholy before a holy God. That's the starting point. Every one of us in this room who claims the name of Jesus had that starting point. I can't do it. God is holy. I am unholy. He needs to do it for me because I cannot fix myself. That's the starting point. But oftentimes we don't want that kind of exposure. We don't want to do the hard work of repentance. So as long as the Lord's moving at Asbury or at Samford or in China or the Middle East or Cuba, that's great. We'll rejoice, but don't draw near to us, Lord. We will send you away. Movements of God begin with radical self-examination and humble repentance as a response. What would it look like in this place if we were honest with God and with one another about our sin? I mean, what would it look like in this place if we asked God to break us and fill us fresh with new life? What would it look like to actually be a true gospel community? A community willing to have the fullness of God's inspection upon us. A community willing to receive correction from one another and from the hand of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Let us not be afraid to be broken human beings in this place because that's the starting point. To allow the Spirit to examine us on a regular basis and allowing Him to root out sin in our hearts will give us lives full of freshness in Christ Jesus. We need that. That's the first reason I think we tend to send God away is we don't want to be exposed. And then second, I think we get nervous when the Lord draws too close because the Lord tends to move in ways that make us really uncomfortable. You know, if exposure is not enough, there's just some things the Holy Spirit does that simply don't fit into our pre-made theological categories. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus about being born again. Verse 8, he tells Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear, you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. We like predictability. 
We like consistency. We like to know how life's gonna go for us. You know, I'd venture to say we even like coming into this room and sitting in our seat and seeing the same structure and flow to our services and seeing the same faces and expecting the same quality of product, so to speak. There's comfort in that because in that scenario, the spirit is somewhat predictable, right? We've done those open mic things here a couple of times with me, and and I know I do, maybe you do, get a little nervous sometimes where it's like free microphone, like what's going to happen? But if we're honest about why that makes us nervous, it's because it's not predictable. It's not common. It's not controlled. We can't control it. But the Holy Spirit cannot be controlled, church. He cannot be tamed as much as we may want him to fit into our neat, nice boxes and categories. If we truly want to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there is much unpredictability that comes with that. Much uncomfortableness for a lot of us, myself included. Many prayers that are answered in ways that we were not expecting. Are we ready for that? I mean, do we desire that here in our midst for the Spirit to move in ways that just blow our minds, that shatter our framework of maybe how things are? Or when the Spirit starts showing up, we'll be eager to send them away to another church down the road. The ark leaves Beth Shemesh, finds what will be its final resting place for the next 20 years, the city of Kiriath-Jerim. And it's here, the beginning of chapter 7, where we see the first right response to God's presence. And it's there in chapter 7, verse 2. Look at it with me. From the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The people of Kiriath-Jerim sought to repent before Yahweh. This is going to be our stopping point for today. It's going to launch us into next week where Samuel calls the people of Israel back to the Lord. Next week's sermon, as I said before, is going to be kind of a part two with verse two launching us into that sermon on what it means to lament, what it means to repent in this Advent, it's not Advent, this Lent season, a season of contrition, a season of fasting, a season of giving up, a season of reconciliation in many ways leading to Easter Sunday. What does it mean to actually lament and repent of our sin? Unpacking the appropriate responses next week. This fourth response here will be the goal of our sermon. But God used seven cities and took 20 years to transform a bunch of rebels into a bunch of repenters. Sometimes transformations are overnight, like Samuel. Sometimes they take decades, like here. Are we willing to do the hard work and stay the course? if it takes five days for repentance or 50 years for repentance. But in both cases, the kavod, the glory of God, will be at the center. Let's pray together.
Father, begin to posture and position our hearts for a fresh work of the Spirit. Father, I pray that with these new eyes and these new ears that you've given us in Christ Jesus, that you help us to use them to listen, to, to do the work of introspection in our own lives, that you may root out that which is unholy and replace it with that which is holy. Father, I pray for the courage to do that work. Pray for the commitment to do that work. It can be long, arduous, difficult work. But Father, your glory and your name and renown that are the desires of our souls, that's a worthy goal. That is a worthy pursuit. So I ask you to prepare us even now for next Sunday. I ask you to prepare us even now for our night of worship and prayer in a week and a half. That these may truly be times where we once again come to an end of ourselves and find life in Christ Jesus. We need you. You don't need us. We need you. So Lord, I ask you now to have mercy on us. Give us the grace to wait on you. To wait on you. Like watchmen wait for the morning. Like watchmen wait for the morning. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.